Hello, everyone. Welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss legal news, events, topics, stories, and other vague synonyms for whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister. And co-hosting the pod with me today is Jen Byrne of the Chicago Bar Association. Hello, Jen. Hi, John. This is the Peeking Beneath the Blindfold edition. Topics we'll be discussing today include how do judges decide what they decide and why they decide it and other various things. Joining us today is veteran white-collar criminal defense lawyer Joel Cohen of Strook, Strook, and Lavin in New York. Before joining Strook, Joel served as for a decade as a prosecutor with the New York State Special Prosecutor's Office, and then with the DOJ's Organized Crime and Racketeering Section in the Eastern District of New York. Joel writes regularly for the New York Law Journal, Law.com, and HuffPo, and he's written a number of books, including Blindfolds Off, Judges, and How They Decide, a truly fascinating collection of interviews Joel performed with 13 current and former federal district uh, court judges. Joel, welcome. Thank you for having me. So for those of us in our audience uh, who haven't read or picked up your book, Blindfolds Off, yet, uh, why don't you tell them about it? So it's a book consisting of 13 interviews of federal judges, mostly still sitting federal judges, who were involved in large cases, cases that generally had a national uh, component to them. And um, some of those judges I knew from before because they're New York judges, But then I looked for judges around the country in that kind of a case and found them more than willing to talk, which surprised me a great deal. Federal judges are usually in the monastery or the courthouse. Mm -hmm. Um, They were willing to talk and speak somewhat boldly in terms of those cases. What inspired you to write it? What were you looking for? Well, actually, I was originally going to write the book um, or wanted to write the book with Judge Rakoff, who sits in the Southern District of New York. He's probably the most prolific judge in that courthouse, maybe in the country. And I would talk to him about 10 different cases that he was involved in. Mm -hmm. And it was just excruciating getting a hold of him because he's such a workaholic. And I'd be meeting with him for two or three occasions in the evening on Sunday at 10 o'clock. And after a while, he said to me, he says, I'm not doing you justice. It's just taking too long for you to get this done. So I, I moved in the direction. We both sort of talked about it of maybe changing the model of the book to be uh uh, interviews with with different judges in different cases. And I think we'll get to some of the specific interviews because I'd love to ask you some questions about those in a minute. But uh, what were some of your biggest takeaways from the book? What did you learn? What surprised you? For a guy who's been around the block uh, um, for a long time, I was shocked by some of the things judges said with respect to um, how they look at cases and sometimes they're looking cases beyond the case, that they're looking to basically change society in a way. You find Judge, he was then the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, Judge Kaczynski. He would talk about a case in terms of not how this case was decided, but how he was going to move the law. Judge Weinstein, who's the the dean of the federal judiciary, is now 96 or 7, he was 93, I think, when I interviewed him. Um, he dealt with the Agent Orange case, the horrible abuse that resulted uh, from the Vietnam War that now we're now seeing on that wonderful show about Vietnam that, mm-hmm. um, that is going on on public uh, television. He basically said that beyond trying to compensate soldiers for having been contaminated by Agent Orange, he wanted to do something that the country had not done yet, show respect for the military that came home that was so disrespected when it happened. He was looking to accomplish something far beyond the four corners of the case that was presented to him. That was, uh, my mouth dropped when I heard him say that. 
Right, because usually when you think of judges moving the law, as you said, you think of Supreme Court judges or possibly circuit court judges, appellate judges doing that. Uh, that's not really in the job description of district court judges, is it? Well, I mu must say that the sample I chose in these cases, because I was looking for big deal cases with big deal results, the the the, the demographic of who I chose was yeah. somewhat skewed. I was picking somewhat older judges mm -hmm. because I felt they'd be more um, outspoken in terms of what they were doing than young, less secure judges. And also these people were people who had done bold things, right. were more willing to talk about it. And it's too late for further confirmation hearings. Exactly. For that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the forward in Blindfolds Off was written by uh, recently retired Judge Richard Posner, late of the Seventh Circuit. Uh, why ask an appellate judge to introduce a book about how trial judges think? It's an interesting thing, although Judge Posner uh, prided himself on sitting sometimes in, in the district court. But the thing about Judge Posner, he's a provocative figure, particularly <laughs> of late. Least. Yeah. Uh, and I do a monthly blog with him and Judge Rakoff now. Um, but he's the probably the most influential thinker on the law um, in the United States and on judging, maybe mm -hmm. in the world, and on judging. And he was a guy who could really look at what I had done and say something worthwhile. And in fact, he was somewhat critical. He said the interview method of interviewing judges has a deep flaw. The deep flaw is judges are self-unaware, his words, in, in terms of recognizing the biases that they have. Mm -hmm. So while the introduction was very kind and very generous to me, he made it very clear that to some extent the interview method doesn't succeed because some judges are holding back. Right. He, I think the words he used was that judges hide behind a, a veil of modesty. Um, that if it came from another judge, it would have surprised me. But <laughs> coming from Judge Posner, it didn't. Uh, but I, it seemed to imply that that he modesty— humility is overrated, I think. Uh, that's an understatement, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that's kind of interesting, actually, because did you read the article that was in the ABA Journal last week? I think it was about how— for his recent book, he revealed a lot of information. Internal memos from the Seventh Circuit. Et cetera. So it's interesting that he would comment in that regard in the foreword and then kind of take the opposite approach in, in his own book. I don't know. Well, you need to get Judge Posner on this show. I'm sure that would increase your audience considerably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but returning to the, the veil of modesty thing, that, that took me back, I suppose, because uh, it implied that that modesty was false on behalf of trial judges. Do you think that's the case? I, I don't think there was a, an issue of false modesty. I certainly felt that in the case of a couple of these judges that they held back. They mm. were not comfortable. When you're taping somebody, I, I actually do a class at Fordham Law School in New York based on this book where we we and the students, my, my co-teacher and the students, uh, interview judges on big cases, some of them who, who've appeared in, in, in this book. And um, we don't let the students record anything, use their computers while the judges are there, because you're a lawyer. They must be you, twitching. Yeah, exactly. You're a, you're a, exactly. You're a lawyer, and you know what happens when a young associate is sitting there taking notes when you're trying to interview not paying a attention. witness. Yeah. It, well, not only that, that the witness is looking at the person taking notes and basically holds back to some extent. Mm. And, and that's the advantage of the class, because there's no recording, but here's recording here. For example, uh, Judge Sullivan um, sat on the Senator um, Ted Stevens prosecution mm -hmm. um, years ago in, in D.C., and he ultimately was disturbed by the government's conduct. He ultimately um, uh, threw out the conviction on the government's application. 
And um, Judge Sullivan, who sat on the case, wonderful, wonderful man. And I asked him during the course of the interview, I asked kind of direct questions, do you think that the guy was innocent? He says, the word innocent doesn't really have a place in the courtroom. It's about guilt or non-guilt, not innocence. And, um, you know, that's very nice for a charge to a jury. Mm -hmm. But I felt that Judge Sullivan just didn't want to communicate that. After the interview was over, the, the recording was over, and he's just a wonderful, wonderful man. You should meet him someday. Um, uh, he said to me, well, how did that go? I said, Judge, this conversation would have been a lot different if you and I had had a glass of wine you know, um, <laughs> during this. So then what I would typically do is send the transcripts back to the judge, let them edit it in any way. And none of them, almost none of them edited anything that they had to say substantively, mm. you know, a couple of nitpicks, but nothing like that. He sent it uh, back to me and he said, uh, how does it look? I said, Judge, let me put it this way. If you and I were both in the CIA and uh, in Iraq and they had um, arrested you and was spending the night with you trying to find out if I was in the CIA, I'd sleep well at night because you don't give it up. Um, and that's the truth. Some people give it up in different ways. Mm -hmm. Some give it up, as in the case of Kaczynski and Weinstein, uh, Weinstein more so than anybody. All right, no it's shocking back how there. different along the parameter of the judiciary these judges can be. Uh, one of the interviews you did for the book was with uh, Denny, Judge Denny Chin, who's on the Second Circuit. But before that, he was in the sitting in the Southern District of New York. Um, I have, have had the pleasure of meeting him uh, at a conference, had dinner with him a couple of years ago. Uh, and one of the takeaways I got from your interview with him was that uh, you thought he was holding back. I thought that was um, pretty clear. When you were discussing the... Uh, I'm sorry, I should say for our audience that uh, Judge Chin, amongst other high-profile cases he's handled, uh, sentenced Bernie Madoff to 150 years in prison after his uh, infamous uh, swindle. And I, I, you were trying to ask the same question a number of different ways I saw in the interview, but uh, having trouble um, uh, getting him to perhaps open up, as you said. Yeah, and, and it's so, and, it, and, and um, he's a lovely guy, as you say. The problem is, I'm asking him, why would you give a 70-year-old man a 150-year sentence? Mm -hmm. If you give him 30 or 40 years, he's never going to see daylight. And um, it wasn't clear to me, even after the interview, exactly why he was doing that. Are you looking to make a statement? There's no case like that. And I have sympathy for a long sentence for Madoff. I've represented some of Madoff's victims. Mm -hmm. But but I never fully understood. He never want, He never showed in the courtroom and seemed reluctant to say, even in the interview, that he had rage against the guy. Well, how can you not have rage against a guy who you're giving 150 years to? Interestingly, in a couple of weeks, he's coming to this class I teach at Fordham, mm. and I'm having him paired up with Ike Sorkin, who represented Madoff. That should be sort of an interesting discussion about how judges decide, what would you, Ike Sorkin, do if you were the judge sitting in the case Denny Chin or Judge Chin, what would you do in the case if you were Ike Sorkin? And and that's kind of the discussion that's going to go on. And and both of them, I think he'll he'll draw out uh, Judge Chin a little more than perhaps I did. That's a great opportunity for those students. Well, yeah, that's fantastic. You no would you put that up on YouTube? I'd, I'd want to watch it. Well, no tapes in the. In You're the right. Class, so uh, to get make an exception. <laughs> make an exception. <laughs> Uh, another one of the uh, interviews you did, uh, you, you mentioned before Judge Posner uh, talking about how judges bring certain biases and life experiences to the bench. Uh, one of the interviews you did was with former district court judge Vaughn Walker. He presided over 
uh, again, a myriad of high-profile cases, but including the Proposition 8 case in California. And our audience will remember that this was a case involving an anti-marriage equality ballot proposition uh, that defined marriage as being only between a man and a woman. And Judge Walker ruled that the law was unconstitutional as a due process and equal protection violation. But what didn't come out until later, if you'll forgive the pun, is the fact that Judge Walker is uh, a gay man. And uh, when you spoke with him, what what did he say about how that affected or didn't affect his decision making in a, a case that really went to his core civil rights? He actually said it didn't affect him. Obviously, that that's uh, something you really need to think about. And he said, um, as ultimately came out when they, what happened is. He um, uh, he said that the entire legal community and judiciary of uh, San Francisco knew he was gay. He never came out and said, I'm gay, but everybody knew. And he said anybody who didn't know that, who was in the system, uh, was living under a rock, basically. Yeah. Um, there was some view, by the way, I'm sure, on the part of the plaintiffs who were trying to uphold the ban on same-sex marriage, um, that they could count on him. He had once represented the uh, uh, the Olympics against the Gay Olympics. In there was a uh, uh, trademark uh, violation right. uh, challenging it, and they felt well, he's willing to represent the Olympics against the Gay Olympics. He might be a good kind of a vote for us, notwithstanding the fact that he might be gay. But I asked him, so why didn't you put on the record if you thought they wouldn't look to recuse you from the case? because you were gay, because that was the word on the street that he was gay. Why did you just put it on the record and end it? And my sense of it is he was withholding on that question. Mm -hmm. He's a wonderful guy and he's just um, um, written a very kind review of Broken Scales that, that Jenna's gonna be asking me about. But um, he saw at some point, he, he's, a, he's a very smart guy and you know, he looks like a Hollywood actor. I remember um, interviewing him at his law office at the Pillsbury firm in San Francisco. And um, at some point, I was just totally getting frustrated with him that he wasn't giving it up. And I said, you know, Judge, I'm trying to get inside your head. And he said, yes, I do know that, Joel, but just remember, there's only room for one of us in there. <laughs> and basically, you know, he was saying, you can go up to the line just so far, but you can't go over that line with me. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Why didn't he put his, uh, his his gay status on the record? I can only think that he was afraid that perhaps, first he wanted to handle the case, mm -hmm. but perhaps there might be a, um, a, a significant motion to have him recused and then he'd lose the case. Right, and but, you, you- You know, I don't know that, he's never admitted it to me, and uh, I don't know if the admitted it is the right word. He hasn't acknowledged it to me. Sure. But I don't know if that's the reason. And you hinted before that the plaintiffs um, probably knew that he was gay, or almost certainly knew that he was gay. He says so, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, was. do you think the thinking there is that not just him, but judges perhaps are aware of some of their biases, or at least their more obvious biases, and will actually try to overcompensate by skewing the other way to prove that they're not biased. Well, yeah, I think that maybe there was a concern that in, it, it, maybe the, the plaintiffs thought that he would bend over backwards in their favor because he wasn't looking to make a public spectacle of the fact that he was gay. And it's so interesting. When I interviewed him, it must have been three or four years ago, um, uh, the Supreme Court had not yet finally decided the gay marriage case. They decided his case 
based on a procedure that the state right. of California had not uh, litigated the case, so there was no standing to contest it. But it's so incredible that in the last six years, how how far um, uh, the status of gays and gay marriage has changed um, um, the United States. Right. Um, and, and he was at the forefront. He's the guy who decided that first case. And, and interestingly, uh, David Boies and the former Solicitor General of the United States, uh, Ted... Um, I'm losing his name. Uh, Olson. Ted Olson, thank you. Um, tried the case together, which is an incredible combination. And those is. two guys were opposite each other in, in uh, Bush v. Gore. Right. Yeah, that's uh, quite the pairing. Um, you know, it strikes me that what we're talking about ties in pretty well, or rather it's timely because of some of the um, attacks that we're seeing, uh, particularly by the president on the judiciary, about um, – uh, you know, their fairness, their priors, as Judge uh, Posner said. Uh, whenever a judge issues an adverse ruling against the president, it seems he attacks them, accusing them of being biased. Um, in the in the case of, uh, I think it was Judge Alonzo, because of his heritage. Curio. Uh, Curio, thank you. Um, saying, you know, because he had Mexican heritage, he couldn't be uh, objective uh, because of some of the things that the president said about Mexicans during the campaign. Um or because of you know the court they sit on and the perceived political leanings of that court in the case of the uh, travel ban case, uh, what do you make of that phenomenon of um, the increasing acceptance of politicians uh, attacking judges and their their uh, honesty? You know, I did a program uh, in Pennsylvania to Pennsylvania state judges. There were about three hundred and fifty in the room, and I was the only non-lawyer I think in the room. And I raised in a hypothetical to the panel I was moderating. Um, that how could it possibly be that if the president is a litigant before them after the kind of attack he has made or attacks he has made against the judiciary, and they all felt somewhat sanguine that, that, that they could keep it out of their consciousness. I'm not so sure. I think Judge Posner is probably right about that. Although Judge Posner would say, I won't be and, – and basically said to me – I interviewed Judge Posner for the ABA Journal. Judge Posner said, I don't think judges are that petty. I wouldn't be bothered if somebody attacked me. Yeah. You know, and, then, and I said to Judge Posner at the time, are you self-aware at this moment? <laughs> he's, um, <laughs> he's known for having a bit of a temper himself, I suppose. <laughs> I've, I've always found that uh, people uh, who haven't had to argue in front of him have uh, more favorable views of him than those who have. <laughs> <laughs> that may be. Um, do you think that those uh, – the, the kind of criticisms that Judge Posner – observations, criticisms, however you want to define them – that Judge Posner has put forward about the judiciary uh, feed into some of those kind of corrosive influences that the president has put forward about the about the rule of law? If, if Actually, I don't. I don't think that Posner's leader, uh, readership is the same crowd – that's um, you Fair. know s supportive of of the president. Sure. Uh, I think he always appeals. Uh, Trump always appeals to his base. I don't think his base, um, not that they're not as intelligent as as the rest of the populace, but I don't think they're reading Posner's things. And Posner things don't get that kind of widespread um, audience to influence. Um, the body politic as much. You don't think Joe, Joe, Joe uh, the plumber is reading, reading the uh, not, ABA uh, not journal or anything basis. like that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I haven't heard his name in a while. Yeah. Just, you know, deep reference. <laughs> Hot takes people. Joe, the plumber's back. Okay. I think that's probably a great place to take a break. We'll, we'll be uh, right back. Great. 
This episode of At the Bar is brought to you by InvoTrack, Illinois' premier e-filing provider with the most powerful integrations and the industry's leading practice management systems. InfoTrack reduces the amount of time and effort to e-file as well as minimizing your e-filing risks with smart and intuitive solutions. To find out more, visit InfoTrack.com or call 844-340-3096. And we're back. Jen, tossing it over to you. So, Joel, I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about your more recent book called Broken Scales, Reflections on Injustice. And that was actually just published this year in 2017, right? Yes. Um, the, the book basically covers 10 interviews that you conducted with various people and surrounding stories that are focused on justice or I guess injustices that occurred in um, those instances and it covers the time span of the past 60 years. Um, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I thought I had looked at the judiciary in, in blindfolds off and now let me look at where the, the, judiciary, the judiciary may have gone wrong or some aspect of the criminal justice system has gone afoul and let me look at that and hopefully look at it not from the typical view you would you would expect if you're looking at injustice you look at 10 guys who were taken off a death row or weren't taken off a death row or executed you know and brady material wasn't turned over to the prosecutor or something wrong happened in the case let me try to look at it from different perspectives and in, in fact one of the perspectives i i wanted to look at it from you're familiar with the central park um five killing, uh, killing uh, rape rather, in New York, where uh, ultimately they were exonerated, even though President Trump, when he was still a real estate developer, thought those guys who, who raped that woman, who, who were convicted of raping the woman, should get the death penalty. And that's been thrown up to him in debates. Right. I wanted to, moments. Yeah, I wanted to look at that case from the perspective of the prosecutor. Do you think that an injustice was committed um, at your um, uh, doing? and why not she was unwilling to do it. So I, I was looking at it not only from the perspective of victims of the crime, but witnesses, judges, prosecutors, um, or defendants. Right, right. So from all angles, I guess. Yes. Um, what drew you to the stories that you selected that, you know, you narrowed it down to 10 and you did sort of an interview style similar to what you did in the prior book. What what made you choose those stories? So it was sort of different in, in terms of the judges. Um, I was able to get pretty much every judge who I wanted to interview to agree to interview. The only two judges who wouldn't agree to interview, by the way, are one, Roy Moore, who was running for the United States Senate in Alabama, Whoa. who was the chief judge of Alabama at the time. Because that would be, a, yeah, he's a special case. Special kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the woman, Susan Weber Wright, who sits in Arkansas, who um, she sat on the Bill Clinton case, she was willing to be interviewed but not in the Clinton case because she thought it might still have impact. She knew that Hillary Clinton would be running for president. Mm -hmm. It was more difficult to get people involved in injustices. Interestingly, in some cases where defendants had been exonerated, they were sort of hooked up by their lawyer and wanted you know, potential book rights and stuff like that. They didn't want to give up their story here. So it was harder to get people, or some people, the thing was too painful um, for them to go into the injustice again. And some of them I sort of persuaded, you need to tell your story. Whatever that story might be, you need to tell your story. And, and one was the case of, of this prosecutor in Shreveport, Louisiana, Marty Stroud, who basically put a man on death row for 30 years 
um, ultimately he got exonerated. 30 years, he death row, never knowing when they're going to pull the trigger on you. And this guy is living with the pain of that, of having basically killed another man. And um, I asked him now, and then the guy got, got exonerated, and ultimately after he got exonerated, he died six months later right. for a cancer that was never detected. I asked Marty Strata, how do you, how's your life every day? He says, I walk up, I wake up with a cold one, uh, I'm sorry, cold wind blowing through my gut um, every single day. A hole in my gut with cold wind, north wind blowing through it. And he speaks in such morose terms about it. So he's sort of a classic about injustice, but not from the perspective of the victim, from the perspective of the guy who victimized him, albeit unintentionally. Did you feel like that was a common theme in a lot of the stories that you talked about, was that the injustice that you're telling the story about was sort of a defining moment in their lives? Well, and that was part of the thing. How do they deal with the fact that that injustice was accomplished? There was another guy uh, named Ken Ireland who was prosecuted when he was around 20, was in jail for 20 years for a rape murder that he didn't commit. He's in jail every day, a total innocent. He was from the, the wrong side of the tracks, but a total innocent, never convicted of a crime, never involved in any crime other than being charged with and convicted of this. The guy goes through life in jail and tells you in jail, even though he's a straight guy, he's never done anything wrong, he has to live in the jail as if he is a hoodlum and a thug. Because if he doesn't show that he's a tough guy who actually pick fights to show who he is uh, as a strong guy, he'll get picked on. And he, he comes out of the jail. It's extraordinary. He gets exonerated by the Connecticut Innocence Project, who do all the Innocence Project do extraordinary work. And his family and the, and the defense lawyers take him to a restaurant. He hadn't been in a restaurant in 20 years. And he goes to the men's room, and he walks past a wall that's all mirror. And he's looking at it, and the guy's looking back at him. And he says, who's that old guy who's staring at me? I said, what are you talking about? You've seen a mirror. He says, there's no mirrors in jail. They give you some kind of a translucent device with which to shave. He hadn't seen his face in the years of his aging from age 20 to 40. So he didn't recognize himself. Didn't recognize himself. It's just, you, know, you, you want to cry when you're hearing this story. Yeah. There's another story in there about a, a guy named uh, Abdallah Higazi. Abdallah Higazi was living, he was an exchange student from Egypt. He had been in the Egyptian, not the Air Force, but an analog, not an analog, uh, a, um, a part of the uh, uh, Egyptian Air Force. And he's um, living at the Millennium Hotel. The Millennium Hotel still stands, it's right opposite the World Trade Center. So the hotel is evacuated on 9-11, mm -hmm. okay? And um, so he comes back, he gets a call to pick up his belongings a couple of months later when the dust has settled and the hotel is reopened. And um, he, uh, they say, okay, you can pick up your belongings. You have um, a Quran, he's Muslim. You have a Quran, you have a prayer rug, you have some clothing, and you have a device by which you can talk to planes from the ground. He said, I don't have such a device. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not me. You're wrong. Well, an FBI agent down the hall wants to talk to you. They take him into custody as a material witness before Judge Rakoff, and the guy says, I want to take a lie detector test. I, I had nothing to do with this. And he has a court-appointed lawyer. There's always a distance between a client and a court-appointed lawyer because you don't 
completely trust him. Right. Besides, he's a Muslim from another country. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy says, don't take a lie detector test. Judge Rakoff says, don't take a lie detector test. They don't really work. He says, I insist. He goes into a lie detector room with the FBI and the FBI agent says, let's cut the crap over here. We both know you're guilty. And we know where your brother is upstate New York. And we know where your family is in Egypt. And you know what's going to happen to them if you don't straighten this out real quick and confess. And the guy confesses that that device was my device. They prosecute him for having made a false statement to the FBI. And then um, he's in jail every day. He's walking around with guards behind him and his um, handcuffs on or chains behind his back. And uh, every single day, he's considered the 20th terrorist. He's the guy who talked to the planes from the ground. Okay, they think the only living 20th terrorist because all the others died in the crashes. And then um, two months um, later into his stay, he gets called to the warden's office um, he says, why are there no guards? Why are there no chains? Why are there no handcuffs? He said, oh, didn't you find out some um, American Airlines pilot came forward and acknowledged that the device was his? <laughs> I, I mean, mean, you know, I'm thinking about I'm in New York or you're in a, uh, a cosmopolitan town here. Right. The kind of stuff that happens in Shreveport or that happens in Connecticut doesn't happen here. Well, it does happen here. And false confessions. I mean, I feel like now with different stories that are coming out, like in the making of the murder case with Brendan Dassey, people in the public are becoming more and more aware that this is a thing, so to speak. What are your thoughts on false confessions? And did you encounter a lot of that when conducting these interviews or working as a prosecutor? I didn't, fi- I didn't find it. Have your attitudes of, changed? Yeah, I didn't find it so much as a prosecutor. Barry Sheck is a, is a close friend of mine and he's done just extraordinary work. And I, I used to listen to his stories until it became too painful to to listen to some of the stories he tells. Um, he's literally taken 40 people off the death row. Not p- people at death row who are the victim of an injustice because the police committed mis- misconduct or there's a Brady violation. Totally innocent people. Those are the ones that he's represented. Forget about all the others that must be out there. I remember he told a story. Uh, it's an extraordinary story that I'll share with you. Um, he was taking a guy off a death row in Texas. Bush was president, and, and, and I think the death, the death sentence was imposed when Bush was um, the governor of Texas, where they had the highest um, uh, uh, death uh, row cases or, or um, um, sentences to, to death in, 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 the, in the country. And um, so he was going to have take this guy out at the jail, bring him to the governor's mansion for a press conference on, to basically get rid of the death sentence. And um, so they're driving along the road, and there's a church off to the side, and the guy says, Barry, can we stop for a second? I, I want to go to the church. So what do you want to go to church? We've got to be at the press conference. He says, I want to go there to confess. Barry says, please, anything, just don't use the word confess. <laughs> <laughs> you just couldn't, you just can't hear, hear, can't hear that word. Hear. Um, he's portrayed in the movie Conviction with Hilary Swank. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen it, but he's he's just Has wonderful. he ever talked about his portrayal in that to you? Uh, uh, too much, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> It's a great movie, and yeah. he's well portrayed. He should be happy with it. He is it. well portrayed. He's, Peter Gallagher he, plays him, Yeah. in case you haven't seen it. Um, well, yeah, that's so. It, it, it's interesting when we talk about uh, uh, confessions and and uh, total innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions I sort of raised in the book is whether there's an injustice, even if the person's not innocent. 
if the person is wrongly convicted because the prosecutor has done something horrible or deliberately right. or the police have done something horribly or deliberately, um, is there an injustice in any event because the system is so malfunctioned to even convict a guilty person? And, and, and I think, you know, we're lawyers, so lawyers sort of take liberties sometimes with, with how they view the law. But I think there are injustices there. The public, for the most part, doesn't care. If the guy's guilty, is guilty, so some prosecutor screwed around or right. the police screwed right. around or they moved the evidence around. I mean, it's sort of like... And justify o the means. Yeah, like O.J. Right. Simpson is the classic case of it. Right. I mean, the white public um, feels that he was guilty. The black public at the time thought he was not guilty, mainly because the black public knew at the time that the police were capable of the conduct that the police in... Um, you know, O.J. Simpson case. But do you uh, feel like people's attitudes of. in that regard are sort of changing? I mean, I, you know, maybe I've been so indoctrinated because I did an internship with the public defender's office and I, I started to see behind the curtain a little bit more. And as lawyers, we're, I think we look at things differently, like you said. But I feel like the public's impression is changing a little bit. And maybe it's just in general because cynicism is on the rise towards the government in general. But do you feel like... Do you feel like that's changed? I don't know. I'm wondering whether what's currently going on in the country with these protests with the NFL and the NBA and, and all of that, it's, it's sort of interesting. I've noticed that the NFL is involved and the NBA is involved, but not so much baseball yet because baseball isn't as black uh, a sport as um, football or oh, basketball. An and I wonder if it's going to move in that direction that Hispanics so far haven't had that groundswell that, that fortunately the African-American community has had. But it's going to be interesting how the public reacts because it's not exactly clear what Kaepernick's protest has morphed into. I don't know what the protest is. I don't know why people are taking any. I'm all in support of it, not in great support of it other than doing it in front of the flag. I, I like what the Dallas Cowboy team did last night, doing it before the, the national anthem. But I'm wondering where that protest ultimately leads. Is it just against the president or it is against the criminal justice system and how it treats uh, or how the country treats blacks well i've heard some interviews of athletes who have you know who have mentioned different components of the criminal justice system whether it's just street interactions with police or um the way you know the way the you know the court system is handling cases it's starting to come up as an issue but i was sort of thinking about i mean not to keep referencing these pop culture notions but i think about the making a murderer case or even the jinx that was on hbo mm -hmm. and i think just the general public is walking away from the watching those feeling so shocked that this is going on in the criminal justice system. And it, and it really does get to what you're talking about, which is whether or not the person is guilty or innocent, they're basically being steamrolled in this situation. Or in the case of the jinx, I think people were in sort of a, a weird way, or maybe some people were happy to see Robert Durst, Durst walk away because he had a good lawyer who put on a good defense for him and were I guess sort of relieved that he was able to be successful or or brought up a conversation about whether he was successful in that case because he had the means um, and whether it was always that fair. But so if, if, if I can, I'm hearing a distinction, I think, or rather a disconnect in what you're saying. I agree with it, but I think there's probably a distinction between uh, growing public cynicism um, in the system, skepticism toward the system, and a belief in the importance of process. Uh, which strikes me as something else. Well, 
they are distinguishable, but I think what I'm getting at is that um, because people are having an increasing cynicism, the unintended result perhaps of the cynicism is to be cynical of all systems. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why people are opening their eyes a little bit more to the concept of injustice and justice and whether or not somebody who is guilty um, is is you know well it's sort of interesting that receiving the, the, a fair the shake. title blindfolds off for the for the other book that we were just talking about probably could have applied to broken scales also uh, Alan Dershowitz was, was he's probably the most famous lawyer in the United States he was kind enough to give me a, a blurb for this book and he said the blindfolds off which we generally think of of the blindfolds being on on Lady Justice has actually been on on the community, that the community has been blinded, and now we're taking it off so that the community can now see what's going on, in that case, in the, in the instance of judges, but also in, in terms of injustices, and taking the blindfolds off might show the public what's really going on, because too often the public watches Law and Order or Blue Bloods and whatnot, and sees justice or injustice from a kind of a warped perspective, that that's not what's really going on. And that's exactly the kind of insightful and ambiguous comment I think we should probably end on <laughs> before we take our next break. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. This episode of At the Bar is brought to you by InfoTrack, the only e-filing provider to offer a fully integrated solution with practice management systems such as Smokeball and Clio. Learn more about how you can reduce the stress of e-filing with InfoTrack. Visit us at InfoTrack.com or call 844-340-3096. So before we wrap up today, we're going to play a game we like to call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Each of us, or rather only me, Jen didn't do her homework today, Oops. has done some poking around the internets like any judge going out the outside the record would. And we found some of the strangest laws that are still on the books in the U.S., uh, or rather, I did, Jen. <laughs> you can get all the credit, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it. All right. So, Joel, just so you know how it works, um, I'm going to summarize a real law and then another law that I just completely made up, and then I'm going to pull you and Jen to see if you can distinguish uh, strange law from legal fiction. Everybody ready? Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Option number one, according to California's Fish and Game Code, any person may possess any number of live frogs to use in frog jumping contests. Apparently, that's still a big sport. But if such a frog dies or is killed in the heat of the sport, it must be immediately destroyed and cannot be eaten for any purpose. So you can't take it to your you know, favorite local French spot and Eat offer it up legs? to the French. So yeah, I just, I just killed this myself. Will you cook it up? So that... That is illegal, or is this? According to Florida's Fish and Wildlife Code, it is legal to wrestle an alligator, provided you have a proper county permit, but it is illegal to use a chokehold on the alligator when doing so. Further, if the alligator is found to have died from such an illegal hold, the violator is subject to a fee of up to $1,000 and six months in prison. So the question, which is the real law of those two? Correct. The first one is a real law. Jen? I'm gonna go with the second one's a real lie. I feel like the the frog legs. I mean, people want to eat those. I don't know why they would outlaw that. They're surprisingly <laughs> good. They taste like kind of buffalo. Wings. And I also feel like in Florida, they would 
They would have some rules about how you can treat an alligator during a fight. Yeah, Joel, but you were pretty certain though. Why do you think the first one's real? Because I'm flipping a coin. That's why I'm so certain. <laughs> <laughs> and but you he's know confident. what? And you know what? That's a good coin. You should hang on to it. You're absolutely right. The California law is real. Oh man! Is it yeah. enforced? Uh, that I have that no would be idea. interesting to see if somebody claimed a discriminatory enforcement if he's the first guy who's ever prosecuted under that law. Mm, yeah, true. It's kind of uh, maybe they could claim that uh, it's an insult to their French heritage. <laughs> All right. And that's our episode for today. I want to thank our guest, Joel Cohen, for joining us and reminding us that the, our careers in the law have actual meaning and are defined by the arbitrary and capricious whims of modern-day Delphic oracles. I also want to thank everyone who makes this machine run, including my co-host today and our executive producer, Jen Byrne, as well as our sound crew, Ricardo Islas and Steve Weirich. Remember, you can join us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the Bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for Jen Byrne and all of us here at the CBA, this is John Amarillo, and we'll see you at the bar. Bye.